most importantly, to serve our God. If you would turn your Bibles to Acts 4, that's going to be our main passage for this morning. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that there are threats out there to the gospel? I think most of us would say yes. Depending on who you ask, you might get a lot of different answers to who or what is threatening the gospel and the work of the church. Most of them are the kind of big concepts. You talk about sin, evil, the devil, the world, the media, whatever it is, we all have our different answers. Mr. Richard talked about that some a couple weeks ago. But what are the threats to your work in the gospel? Some of those answers might be the same answers as the first question. It could be the devil. It could be the world. But some of those answers might be of a more personal nature. The sort of personal battles that only you really know about. Threats that maybe don't affect the church as a whole, but the people and events and temptations that affect you directly. For some of you, the answer might be, it's me. My sin, my fear, I'm the biggest threat to my own work in the gospel. I think maybe a lot of us can sympathize with that feeling. The question is, what do you do about those threats? How do you serve God? How do you live in his word? How do you spread that word in the midst of all these threats? How do you do the work of the gospel when the devil and sin and all sorts of temptation are so prevalent in this world? Well, that's really the story of Acts 3 and 4. And those are some of the questions that we're going to try to answer today. Before we get to Acts 4, Stephen, I thought this one was supposed to work. Before we get to Acts 4, um, I want to give a little bit more of the context of this story. The church is in its infancy here. It's not been around very long at all. In Acts 3, we see uh, John and Peter coming up to the temple to pray. And they notice a beggar. This beggar was a lame man. Not that he was uncool or anything like that, but this man was literally lame. He couldn't use his legs at all. He couldn't move on his own at all. And every day, this man was carried to the temple courts so that he could beg from the crowds. So that he could make a living. And he had been lame since birth. The next chapter said that was over 40 years ago. So he's probably been begging this way for a pretty long time. Being carried to the outskirts of the temple every day to beg. And it's a tough picture to think about. It's a hard life. And for 40 years, it was this man's reality. And I don't know what was different about the day that Peter and John noticed this man. I don't know if it's the first time Peter and John had passed this guy, or maybe it was simply the first time that they thought they had anything to give him. I don't know what was different. 
But what happened when this beggar called out to Peter and John, the same way that he would call out to anyone, is that Peter and John noticed, and Peter said in Acts 3, verse 6, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, stand up and walk. And at once the man is able to walk and to run and to jump for the first time in his life over 40 years. So the man naturally went about the temple praising God for the miracle that had been done to him with Peter and John right at his side. And this caused quite the spectacle, as it should have. Imagine if you were one of the Jews that had seen this man begging every day as you went to the temple for years. And now you're watching him walk and jump and praise God in the midst of the temple. You would be taken aback. You wouldn't be able to trust your eyes. And if you're anything like me, you're going to stick around just to kind of see and understand what's going on here. And that's what many of the Jews did that day. They crowded around at one of the walkways of the temple courts, just astounded by the miracle that had taken place. And Peter and John took that opportunity to give another sermon. And in his sermon, Peter said, why are you guys amazed? John and I didn't do this. This didn't come from us. The God of Israel did this. And that was a message that all the Jews could get behind. That would make sense to them. They were at the temple to worship God. They knew his power. Of course it was God who did this great sign. But then Peter continues. He said, but that's not all God did. God also sent his servant Jesus, who actually was the originator of life himself. And you guys killed him. But God raised him from the dead and we saw him raised. And if you don't believe us, you can check your scriptures because Moses and Samuel and all the prophets and God himself told you that this was coming. So if you want salvation, if you want the resurrection of God, you have to serve Jesus. It's another powerful sermon, but it seems like this one maybe didn't get Finished Because while Peter and John were speaking to the crowds, the Sadducees, this powerful group of Jewish religious leaders, they took issue with this preaching. They didn't believe in Jesus and they didn't believe in the resurrection either. So kind of the two core aspects of Peter's sermons go against everything that they really believe in. And so they arrest Peter and John to silence them. And it seems later that it's, they may have even arrested the healed beggar too. But it seems like this is a pretty unhappy ending. Everything kind of goes terribly at the end. But the text tells us in chapter 4, verse 4, that through this sermon, the church grew to 5,000 men. And that doesn't even count the women and children as we know. This story of arrest and shame becomes a great work for the church, despite the ending. But I want to talk about the actual arrest for a second, because that's really what marks the transition point for what we need to focus on today. 
So Peter and John, maybe this beggar, they're put in the jail overnight. And the next day they're brought before the council, the Sanhedrin council, this group of Jewish leaders, powerful people, religiously, socially, politically. And this would include some of the Sadducees that had rested them the previous day. And the Jewish leaders really have three options here. One, they can say that this is a lie. This miracle did not happen. These guys are complete tricksters. The second option is that they could say, yeah, this miracle happened, but by demons or false gods or anything else but by who they actually said it came from. Or option three, they can choose to believe the miracle and the message attached with it, and they can humble themselves and admit the power of God and, and Jesus. That's really their only three options here. And they'll say, well, clearly the healed beggar is standing right here before us, so this is not a lie or a hoax or a trick, because if it is, it took 40 years of planning. So that leaves you with really two options. Is this from God or some sort of evil entity? And that's why they start the kind of proceedings by asking the question that they do in chapter 4, verse 7. In 4, verse 7, they say, by what power or name did you do this? You see what they're really asking there? Who put you up to this? We know it's not God, so who are you doing this for really? And Peter and John, seeing the opportunity for yet another sermon, said, first, you should be happy that we did this. You're acting like we've committed some sort of crime, but actually, this was a great sign done by the power of God through his son, Jesus. It is through Jesus that this man was healed, and it is through Jesus that all men might have salvation. Peter and John really take the leader's to task here. And notice the reaction that the leaders have in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and discovered that they were uneducated and ordinary men, these guys are nothing special by the world's eyes. They were amazed and recognized that these men had been with Jesus. And because they saw the man, the man who had been healed standing with them, they cannot deny the sign. He is standing right there. They had nothing to say to this. And so the Jewish leaders, they kind of concede. They, they go on to say, well, clearly they performed a miracle, so we can't deny that. But what we can do is tell them not to talk about Jesus anymore. Sure, you can say the miracle came from God, but keep Jesus out of this. And Peter and John famously respond in verse 19 and 20, whether it is right before God to obey you rather than God, you decide. For it is impossible for us not to speak about what we have just seen and heard. And the Jewish leaders are mad. They threaten them again, but there's nothing they can really do. There was a miracle. They knew it. Peter and John knew it. And the people knew it. In chapter 4, verse 21, it says, they could not find how to punish them on account of the people because they were all praising God for what happened. And yet, 
Our main story today, the focus of our lesson, comes right after this. This time of triumph for the church, despite the threats. But the story that we're reading starts out far less triumphant. But I've done enough talking. I just want to read the rest of the story with you. If you're still in Acts 4, let's read verses 23 through 30 together. When, when they were released, that is Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the, chief, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threat and grant to your servants to uh, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And we'll stop there for right now. So after this miracle and arrest and sermons and everything else that had gone on. The believers, as some translations say, the friends, as other translations say, and Peter and John among them, they say, they say this prayer for boldness and for confidence. It's the same Greek word. Against the opposition to the gospel. It's a powerful story and a powerful prayer. A prayer of the believers being unified in God and in the work of his gospel. And I really want to spend the rest of our lesson kind of deep diving into that prayer and trying to see what we can apply to ourselves in this story and see how we can grow our prayer life and how we can better handle the threats that the church and our work in the gospel face. The first thing I want to notice is that the prayer is rooted in who God is. Look at how the prayer starts. Verse 24, master of all, you who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. The the prayer starts with an acknowledgement of who they're praying to. And I don't think that we do this enough. I think we might be good about praising God, admiring who he truly is when we're praying prayers of thanksgiving. When we're thanking God for acting in our lives or the lives of our loved ones. But this prayer is a prayer for help. This prayer is a prayer for aid. They're asking God for something. And yet, it still starts with who God is. It still starts with praise for him. It still starts with calling him sovereign, in control of all things, a powerful creator And master. 
They're still lifting up God even when there's all these threats to them around. And sort of relatedly, the prayer goes on to use God's scripture, God's words to address who he is and to address the situation that they're facing. That's what verses 25 and 26 are, where it starts, who said by the Holy Spirit through your servant David, and then they go on to quote the scripture. And this may seem unimportant or unremarkable at first glance, but I think that's because this is an undervalued part of prayer. Because I don't know about you guys, I can't speak to all the people that you've talked to, but what I hear a lot of Christians say is, I know that I need to pray, and I want to pray, but I just don't know what to say. I don't know how to address God. I don't know how to ask him anything. I don't know how to thank him for anything. Christians just sometimes feel uncomfortable in prayer. And that's tough. That's why we have the spirit to perfect our prayers. That's what we're told. But it's also, we have the word. God has already told us who he is. God has told us how he wants us to address him and the problems around us. He's given us that through the scripture. And that's not to say that every prayer needs to just be quoting scripture and only that. But let me ask you this. How are we going to gain a deeper knowledge of God, a deeper knowledge of his workings, a deeper knowledge of what he wants if we never check his word? Because I don't think you can. And how are you going to develop a more comfortable and productive prayer life if you never ground it in a knowledge of who God is and a knowledge of his word? Because I don't think you can. So I want us to first, before we go into the actual what they're asking for, I want to acknowledge the roots of this prayer. And I want to take inspiration from the roots of this prayer. And it's rooted in who God is and what he has said. That's the starting point for their prayer. And then on the basis of that, the prayer shifts to the problem at hand. If you want to read verses 27 through 30 again with me, for indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together in this city against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed to do as much as your power and your plan had decided beforehand would happen. And now, Lord, pay attention to their threats and grant to your servants to speak your message with great courage while you extend your hand to heal and to bring miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Look at what they're saying here. First, they're stating the threats. Just as the Jews and the Romans rose up against Jesus, we face those same threats now. That's what they're saying. And obviously, they know that God knows that. They even say that that God is the one that plans and ordains these things beforehand. So why do you think that they tell him? I don't fully know. 
I think that part of it is that bearing our soul to God, telling him what we're going through actually helps us. We talked about that some a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, when we talked about Jehoshaphat and 2 Chronicles 20. But what I really want you to pay attention here is what the believers are asking of God. Oh, that's the wrong. Uh, they, they, first, they say, pay attention to our threats. See what we're up against. And that reminds me a lot of Exodus 2. Exodus 2, when the Israelites were being abused as slaves in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, it says, Israel cried out, and their desperate cry because of their slave labor went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God understood. Isn't that incredible? Their prayers went up to God, and God remembered his covenant. God saw, and God understood. And then the rest of the book of Exodus tells us what happens when God sees and remembers and understands. God acts. And that's the same thing that the Christians are asking for here. That's the same thing that we can call on our God to do. We call on God to remember, to see, to understand, and to act. Because that's who God is. That's what God does. And we should pray for that. And the next thing that we see is that they ask for boldness or confidence. And I think that's incredible because Peter and John, two of the men in this group, did they seem to lack boldness? Did they seem to lack confidence? I mean, how many sermons have we seen them preach in this lesson alone? The Jewish leaders marveled at the amount of boldness that could come out of such common men. And so what's really going on here? I think... It's exactly what it says it is. Peter and John and the believers and their friends with them, in one voice it says, they're confessing their inadequacy, their fears, their doubts, and they're asking God to give them the confidence and the boldness and how they face those threats. How often do we pray that? Because Peter and John are known for their boldness. And they needed that prayer with all the threats that they had looming. How much do we need that? But notice it's not just for a prayer of confidence in their selves, a prayer that they will have boldness in general. It says, grant to your servants to speak your message with great courage. It's a prayer for boldness, yes, but it's boldness to do the work of the gospel. It's prayer for boldness to be a servant of God. It's boldness to spread God's word. Boldness to fear God and keep his commandments no matter the threats. I might be tempted to pray for God to make the threats go away. They didn't do that. They said that God was working behind the scenes appointing these threats. I might be tempted to pray for 
protection from these threats. Just keep me safe, keep my family safe, keep this church here safe. That's not what they pray either. They pray that no matter what threats come, they keep doing God's will. And they keep aiding in spreading that word. How often do we pray that? I'm going to say probably not enough. And I think in part, that's because we have the idea that maybe only the, pe- the only people that need boldness are, you know, the people that are getting up in front of everyone. You know, it's your elders, your preachers, maybe even your deacons. Maybe they need some boldness, too. And they certainly need that, right? Elders and evangelists, they need boldness. And if you want to pray that for me, I will happily appreciate those prayers. But it says that the believers prayed this with one voice. It says that God's servants are the ones that need boldness. Is that to say that every single one of those believers, every single one of those servants became elders and deacons and preachers or that they even wanted to do that? No. So then why do these believers pray for boldness? I think it's because it's not always easy to serve God. As the Christians in this story learned that there are rulers and there are powers that don't like the gospel message very much. In fact, nations and governments are by their very nature opposed to true Christianity. I think we all know how scary of a thought that can be. This is a prayer akin to, Father, your will be done. It's a prayer that we might serve our creator, our sovereign Lord, better. That we might stick to God's word, no matter what our nation or our friends or whoever else is telling us is right and wrong. No matter the pressures, we're going to fear God and keep his commandments. And we're going to spread his word. And That may not mean preaching or leading or teaching for some of us. For some of us, that means living a devout life as an example. For some of us, it's making sure that you talk more about Jesus in your daily conversations. Does that require boldness? For some of us, it's asking God to help us see the opportunities around us for his gospel message, for all his work, And then the confidence to actually fill those opportunities. And I'm actually going to say, that's for all of us. All of us need to be praying that we see the opportunities to do God's work. And that we have the boldness to do it. The end of the prayer shows that God's already acting. And that he will continue to act. It says that that God has done his part and he will keep seeing and remembering and acting. He says that he will heal and he will do signs and wonders to confirm his word. And I think that we know that God is already active. And that God answers prayers. And maybe that's why we don't want to pray these things. Because we know he'll answer Because God answers the prayer in Acts 4. Immediately he does a sign to confirm his word. He shakes the building. He fills his people with the spirit to spread his word. God shows his approval to this prayer and his commitment 
to act. God sees and remembers and acts. But that's not it. The chapter ends on what seems to be a pretty unrelated note. Normally when we talk about this prayer, we kind of just cut it at when the building shakes and everyone's inspired to do. But that's not how the chapter ends. And I know the chapters are not like inspired or whatever. But I think that there's a reason why whoever decided what these chapter markers are, that they included this little bit at the end here. Because it says in verses 32 through 35, the group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but everything was held in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on them all for there was no one needy among them because those who were owners of land or houses were selling them and bringing the proceeds from the sales and placing them at the apostles feet. And the proceeds were distributed to each as anyone has need. And then it goes on to talk about Barnabas and lead into the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it's a really similar list to some of the things that we see them do in Acts 2. So we might be tempted to skip this, think it's not really relevant to our story at all. But I want to challenge you to think, why is this right after a prayer for boldness? Does this belong in the same context? I think it connects. I think that these verses show a commitment That despite these Jewish threats, despite the Roman threats, despite whatever threats they're facing in their personal lives, the believers are committed to continue doing the work of the church. They are reinvigorated. They are recommitted to the works of Acts 2 that we read, well, that, that we know. They're serving God and serving each other. That takes boldness. That took boldness then. And that takes boldness now. I think those verses are in part a commitment to and a fulfillment of the same prayer that we just read. And I think that in a lot of ways, the rest of the book of Acts is a commitment to and a fulfillment of that same prayer. In fact, we don't have time to read it today, but at the end of Acts 28, the last two verses of Acts 28, it describes Paul in Rome. And it says that he was letting all people come to him so that he might spread God's word in boldness. Those are two of the last words, two of the last verses, I guess I should say, in Acts The rest of the book of Acts shows that when God's people dedicate themselves to him, he gives them boldness to do his work. God answers prayers. God sees and remembers and acts. And remember those those questions that we talked about at the beginning. How do you face the threats in this world? Because we do face threats. Whether it's the big kind of things whether it's the devil's workings, whether it's the world, whether it's our nation, our government, whether it's the media, or maybe it's some of the personal things that you face. That one person that puts a lot of pressure on you. Or maybe it's your own fears, your own temptations. Whatever those threats are, how do we handle those things? I think Acts 3 and 4 give us pretty good place to start. 
Peter and John and the believers, they go to God. They pray to him. They acknowledge who he is, what he has done, and what he continues to do. And then they pray that they can join in that work, that they can become servants of him, that they can have boldness and confidence to fear God and to keep his commandments, no matter what happens in the rest of the world. And with that in mind, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to be dismissed for our classes. Father, thank you for who you are. The creator, the sovereign God, the ruler of all things, who sees and remembers and acts on behalf of his people. Father, we as your servants, we know that you make nations rise and fall, that you appoint rulers and that you are ultimately in control of all things. In our lives, we see threats to the church and to your work. And Father, we see threats in our personal faith, in our personal work. We ask that you see these things and that you continue to act for your people as you always have and you always will. Please grant us the boldness and confidence to follow you. Give us the boldness to love you and the confidence to keep your commandments, no matter the threats around us. And help us to see the opportunities to do your work and to advance your message. And give us the confidence to act in those moments. Help us remember that our works, our lives are not our own, but help us to be servants of you in all ways, at all times. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.